like you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20. Bless you folks that read chapters 20 and 21 ahead a time. I appreciate that. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we can be a little capricious. These things can change at the last minute. We'll be covering Joshua chapter 20. So if you read chapter 21, you're kind of ready for, for the next one in the series as well. But let me, let me read this passage. Joshua chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the city of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. God is merciful. And we're going to see this quite clearly in our passage today. God is merciful, and his mercy is available to those who run to him. So just keep that in mind as we walk through this passage. And we're beginning to wind down in our study in Joshua. We've got a couple more sermons left, I think three. It could be four. <laughs> we call this series The Promise and the Land. Now, that, that, that was deliberate because that's the story Joshua tells. The story of God and a promise that he made to his chosen people. And the land that is the focus, uh, the center of that promise. The land was Canaan. Canaan was promised to Abraham, who lived nearly 700 years prior to the events that roll out in Joshua. God's promise is passed on from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, then his sons, then to Moses. And then it lands in Joshua's lap somewhere around 1300 B.C. or so, where the promise is just beginning to get fulfilled. In fulfilling the promise, there were some challenges that these people had to meet. There were lessons to be learned in each one of the challenges. Israel would have to battle for their new home. 
The victory was promised to them. It was won, but they would have to battle. God promised them victory, but they would have to take a step of faith. They would have to completely trust God. They would have to risk losing, in their eyes, in order to win. They learned that obedience brought them the protection and provision of their Father in heaven, and that disobedience caused them to be exempt from those particular blessings. They learned that God was serious about cleansing his home. He was serious about cleansing his people. They learned that God's children have no need of the ways of the world. All they really need is God. We saw that when they hobbled the horses and burned the chariots last week. By the time we get to chapter 19, the end of chapter 19, the land is taken. Not all of it. God told them it would take some time. Um, it was a very large nation compared to the number of people they had, so they occupied the amount of land they were able to, to effectively take and, and keep control of. So God's plan was going to take some time to roll out. But for now, it was time to settle down and begin the work of building new homes in this promised land, uh, planting crops, enjoying the blessings of being God's children. They're, they're about to enter into a time of peace. Notice as we go along that there have been a lot of memorable characters, just as there are in every book of the Bible. We've seen Joshua's story. We've seen Moses in here. Caleb's in here. We've seen Achan uh, on maybe the negative side. We've seen the kings of the north. We've seen the kings of the south. We've seen the Gibeonites. Those are all people that should stand out in our minds. But even as we see all of these memorable characters, we should understand that God is at the center of everything that's happened. He's the featured character. And as we learn our lessons about all of these people and the blessings and the, the, the tragedies that befall them, we should be understanding more and more about God because he's the main character. In last week's sermon, we heard that God was safe. And that's how Canaan is coming to be. It's coming to be safe. This morning we're going to hear about how God provides for two distinct groups of people. Two very clearly distinct groups of people. As the 12 tribes settle in. And our sermon for this morning is called Refuge. Refuge. As peace descends on Canaan. We see this in Joshua 20 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. Now, let, first, first thing we should see is that Moses didn't come up with cities of refuge. God, God spoke to Moses about it, and Moses spoke through it. But what are these cities of refuge? Let me, let me tell you, I, I think this is more important than it looks, so we're going to spend some time this morning looking at them. If you, if you turn in your Bibles back to Numbers 35, 9 through 34, Moses orders the formation of these cities of refuge. Now, the cities would be a place of sanctuary. Um, we've heard cities of sanctuary in the news in the last week. And so here's the principle right here. The sanctuary for someone who killed without forethought and without premeditation. We see a key phrase that describes the cities in Numbers 35, 11b, the second half. Uh, B means the second half of that, that verse. The cities were a place that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. Now, this describes what we know today as manslaughter. 
And the idea is this. The man, the manslayer could run to this city. He could, he could get inside the gates and escape the avenger. Now, who's the avenger? 3512 says that the, the avengers will be the cities for a refuge from the avenger. Now, this is known in Hebrew as the goel. Uh, and the avenger of blood is called sometimes. It would be the goel hadam. The avenger of blood could most commonly be a family member. Uh, sometimes it was somebody who was uh, civilly appointed. Um, but it would be the avenger of the one who was killed. Uh, a designated protector of the family. And the avenger would have the right to take the life of somebody who had taken, who had murdered someone else. So, so anyone who killed could run to one of these cities and be safe from the goel. Now, making, making it to the city didn't guarantee that the killer would automatically escape punishment. The rest of the verse in Numbers goes on to say that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. Now, congregation is kind of an interesting word here. We'll get to it a little bit later. But the one who killed would have to go before the representatives of that refuge city, usually the elders, and present his case. And they would decide if the killing was intentional. Now, they weren't just capricious. It wasn't just something subjective they could do. There were some guidelines. If a weapon was used, well, that was intent. If there was a fist fight and somebody died because of the fist fight, uh, that was intent. Shoving or something thrown at the person, that was intent. Those who killed with intent were known as murderers. So we really do have two categories here. We have murderers and we have manslayers. Those who killed without intent were known as manslayers. Now, all this was formalized. The guidelines they were given were not meant to be exhaustive. They were meant to be examples of how the law worked. Witnesses would be called in. Uh, executions would occur based on the testimony of at least two witnesses. And what we're describing here is, it's a trial, isn't it? We're describing a trial. There are judges, there are witnesses, a determination is going to be made. Fleeing to a city of refuge gave time for a fair trial to occur. City Refuge was not intended to be a haven for those guilty of willfully violating the commandment not to murder. You couldn't just murder somebody and then run into this city and, and escape punishment. It was meant to be a place where one could receive justice. Now, if a guilty verdict was handed down, uh, in either case, there was no ransom. There was no ransom for a murderer. You couldn't pay to get out of the sentence. There was no ransom for a manslaughter. You couldn't pay. There was nothing like bail. You couldn't bribe somebody. You couldn't get out of what they, they, they couldn't pay to get themselves out of their sentence. And the sentence for a murderer was that they would be executed. And the manslayer, the manslayer had to stay in the city of refuge. And the city had the responsibility to protect the manslayer and to provide for him. If he left the city, the avenger had the right to kill him. He stepped outside the gate of the city and the avenger of blood was standing outside the gate. He had the right and he had actually the obligation to kill him. Isn't that a facet of the manslayer's sentence? He only had to stay in the city of refuge until the high priest 
died. Hold on to that thought. Number 3528 says, For he must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. Huh. The manslayer was under the authority, he was under the protection of the high priest. When the high priest died, the manslayer could go back home. The idea being the, 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 the fear of any repercussions from the, uh, the avenger of blood, he'd be free of those lest the avenger of blood become guilty of murder himself. So he was free when the high priest died. Now there were six of these cities in the promised land, uh, three east of the Jordan River and three west of the Jordan River. Later on in Deuteronomy, Moses tells us, uh, after defeating the kings east of the Jordan, he, he designates the three cities that are going to be east of the Jordan. Deuteronomy 4, 41. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites. Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites. Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. So all this is set up in Numbers and Deuteronomy. When turning back to Joshua 20, we see the eastern cities, the one designated by Mo Moses in verse 8, they're all there. Verse 7 in the passage tells us which cities in the west are going to be cities of refuge. So, Verse 27 says, So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Here's what the distribution in the region looked like. There's a map. Cities are strategically located, listen, so that you could reach wherever you were in the region, you could reach a city of refuge in less than a day. Less than a day's travel, there was a city of refuge that you could get to. Now, verse 9 kind of summarizes the passage, but it reveals something that I, I believe becomes very significant to Israel as God's progressive revelation rolls out in the overall biblical narrative. I think there's something valuable in here for Israel, for us as well. Jo Joshua 29 says this, these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. So one of the societal tenets being described here is the right to a fair trial. You know, we talked about that a little bit earlier, but... The citizens of the land had a right for retribution for somebody who committed a heinous crime, but, but there was some protection. There was some protection offered for the accused. One of the side benefits of the many laws handed down at Sinai was a formation of a godly civil law. And if you go back and take a look at, at uh, Exodus 20 and following and Deuteronomy, and, and you see that that God not only gives them the Ten Commandments, but he gives them a civil, a, a civil social structure that they can work in. He also gives them the sacrificial structure. 
So they have this godly civil law that will govern the affairs and, and the, the movings of the people. But did you notice who was included and who this protection would, would be made available to? It's right there in the first half of verse 9. The protection applied to the stranger sojourning among them. Now, we have to read this as a Jew. Because the first thing I think when I see strangers sojourning among them is that people not of my city. People from over on the other side of the mountain. They're strangers. I don't really know who they are. But in the context of Joshua 20, it means that the city of refuge is available for anyone. Whether they're Jewish or whether they're not Jewish. It means that a foreigner could go into a town, kill someone, and be given a fair trial. Follow me on this. Under all the rules and guidelines supplied, and if he was found innocent of murder, but guilty of being a manslayer, then he would receive sanctuary in that town. The most advanced system for for that period of history. Nobody had anything like this. Fair trials, there were some people that kind of had mockeries of trials, but they were really unheard of. Mob action and instantaneous vengeance were the order of the day, but God gave Israel a godly and civil way to handle those things. And the law, listen carefully, the law applied to everyone not just Israel. A little bit of a revelation at that time. And I believe that the ramifications of that idea, that the law applied to everyone, go, go far beyond the idea of a fair trial. What, what, what this shows us is that God's law applies to everybody. In other words, you don't have to be a believer to be subject to God's law. That can be good, and it can be, it can be pretty ominous. In the case of a fair trial, that's a good thing. But think of this. Have you, ever, have you ever shared the gospel with someone, told them about heaven and hell, and had them respond with something like, well, I don't believe that, as if because they didn't believe it, they, didn't, they weren't subject to it. As if somehow, because they didn't believe that, that they were exempt from the law of God, exempt from the consequences of their sin. Can you imagine standing in a courtroom before a judge, hearing your sentence handed down, and telling the judge, I'm sorry, but I don't believe in your laws. I think I'm going to go home now. It's absurd. You know what the judge would do? He'd say, well, I'm sorry too, but these are the laws of the land and you live in the land. Take them away, boys. God's laws are the laws of the universe. And they apply to everyone. To the Jews in Joshua's time, this would be a revelation. They would have to treat aliens the same way they treated members of their tribe. It's a hint of what was to come. It's an indicator that one day that they would hear that God's blessings and God's grace and indeed the gospel of God applied to people that were not Jewish. That's what Acts 1 and 2 is all about. I believe the author of Joshua chose the words very carefully here. I think he's sending a very succinct message. He's, he's really saying this is more than just about the cities of refuge. You have to understand what's happening here. 
I think we see that same careful choice of words at the end of verse 9 when he calls the jury the Ida, the congregation. It means the assembly. In this case, it means the assembly of God's people. It means the people that are representatives of God and charged with mirroring his character and nature. Their job is to judge accordingly, to hand down a determination that is a reflection of God. It is to be just. It is to be compassionate. It is to be loving. And it has to be willing to be firm and devoted to seeking God. And they have to do that in every decision that they make for people that come before them. You see, what had to happen was the accused had to trust the congregation. The congregation had to trust God and had to represent God as well. That's some tough stuff. What do we learn from it? What's our personal lesson this morning? What have we learned that can be useful to us? Well, there are a few things that I think if we dig deep, we can see them here. First, the law applies to everyone. We heard that. Joshua tells us that everyone can experience God's blessing. Is that true? Can unbelievers experience the blessing of God? Yeah. Yeah, they can. Well, that doesn't sound right. Why should they get blessed? Well, we've got to be obedient. Let me tell you something. There are two... You know, what we're talking about is God's grace, aren't we? There are two types of God's grace. One is salvific, the grace that transforms, the grace that saves. Believers in Christ experience salvific grace. Theological term. You can use it later on this afternoon when you're talking to somebody that wasn't here. Oh, you're talking about salvific grace. The other one's called common grace. Now, this grace is the grace that benefits all mankind, believers and unbelievers. Uh, On one level, the city of refuge is an example of common grace. Non-Jews can reap the blessing of a fair trial and protection. So everyone benefits from common grace. But only some receive salvific grace. The cities show us that God's law applies to everyone. They are a symbol of common grace. But listen, they are not a guarantee of leniency. See, that's what we need to see in here. Instead, if if, if found guilty of intentional murder, whether a foreigner or an Israelite, the sentence is death. And, and it, it, everybody who willfully and with premeditation violates the commandment not to murder dies. The law of God applies to everyone. Common grace applies to everyone as well, but so does judgment, brothers and sisters. If you violate God's law, you're going to die. And as Christians, we need to remember the concept of common grace. Christians are not the only ones who deserve fair treatment. And in a day like today, we need to remember that, don't we? 
It's pretty easy for a lot of folks to decide that someone who is guilty because they're different. They're guilty because they're different in one way or another. It's easy to apply one standard to people who line up with us and another standard to people who think differently. It's easy to assume the role of, at least listen, it's easy to assume the role of avenger of blood. In particular, with all of the tension we have in our culture today. We want to be the avenger towards someone of another political persuasion. Maybe of another doctrinal belief. Maybe of another religion. Or maybe in any other way of, of, of the multitude of ways that people can be different from each other. We want to stand in judgment of them. It can be easy for us to try and catch people outside the walls of the city of refuge so that we can be their judge, their jury, and their executioner and hand down their sentence. But the law says that they will be judged by the standards set by God rather than any of us. Meantime, they have refuge. We should be dispensers of God's grace and leave judgment up to him. His laws apply to everyone, and he will carry them out. Amen? Here's another lesson we find in this message. It's better to confess and surrender than it is to run and hide. That's buried deep in here, but it's there. Frequently, when we do something wrong, we either want to cover it up or we want to run from it. And neither way works very well, does it? It doesn't. In either case, we live in fear of being discovered. We carry the burden of our own sin, and we do it in the loneliest possible way. We do it by ourselves. We're not designed to carry that kind of the lesson the cities of refuge tells us is to run for our covering, to confess, to repent from whatever we've done, and to trust that we will be treated with justice, to find rest and relief in knowing we've been treated fairly and in a godly manner. This is how it worked for those people who ran to the city of refuge. They were trusting the people for a fair trial. Furthermore, once their sin was out in the open, catch this, they were able to function without the burden of this terrible, oppressive secret that they had, without the fear that exposure could do any further harm to them. I mean, what more exposure were they going to have? Those people that they granted refuge in that city, were, everyone there knew why they were there. They knew about the trial. They knew about the sentence. Not only did they know, but they all joined in in helping to protect and provide for the one who was accused. A very real way, that trial, while being public, while being totally 100% humbling, that trial set them free, didn't it? Yes, they were confined to the city, but they didn't have to live in fear. They didn't have to worry about what people thought. The people in the city accepted them the way they were. Flaws and all. There was tremendous fear just outside the door, just outside the shelter of the city. But there was sanctuary among God's people, even blessing. 
that was all available to those who humbled themselves and asked and asked for. Those who humbled themselves and asked for forgiveness. Instead of hiding or covering up, they went to the congregation of God and asked for help and trusted them. Now, perhaps the hardest part of that, of going and trusting, was in receiving the decision, whatever the decision may have been. See, it wasn't really trust if they go to them for a decision and then reject the decision, right? Not really trust if they hoped things would go their way and then fight it when they didn't. Not really trust if they did that. It wasn't really surrender. It was really looking for affirmation for what they had done. Looking for justification. Real trust here is a trust that whatever the decisions may be, they would be handed down in a godly and loving way. In a manner that helped everyone move forward. Help the sinner in repentance and the congregation in restoration. The sinner confesses and surrenders and the congregation protects. It's a model for how the church should be today. There are two good take-homes for you today. God's law applies to everyone. Better to confess and surrender than hide. What do we learn about God? We learn about God and all this. Now, the lesson we can learn about God is threefold here. It's in the, the purpose of the cities of refuge. It's in the geography of the cities of refuge. And it's in the high priest mentioned in verse 6. The purpose of the cities was to deliver the criminal, the, the sinner, from vengeance. But they were only there to deliver only the sinner whose heart was for God. Did you catch that? That the, the only one that receives deliverance, that receives protection, is the one who was not intentionally sinning. The one who wasn't blatant in his rebellion against God. He received protection and provision. There was, there was no deliverance for the one who was intentional in what they did. Those who knew what they were doing wrong by killing somebody, those who were not only aware that it was a violation of the commandment, but, but actually planned their murder and carried it out, were sentenced to die. Uh, if, they couldn't, uh, if they couldn't make it to the refuge of the city, they would die by the hands of the avenger of blood. It was terrifying. But if they did make it to the refuge city, the sentence would be handed down. They would die anyway. But then they would die at the hands of those who were appointed to and called by God to represent him. Brothers and sisters, those who, the, the fate of those who willfully, consciously rebel against God is death. And the fate of those who sin unintentionally, the fate of those whose heart is to please God, but did something that they didn't set out to do. Isn't, isn't that what, what Paul describes in, in Romans 7 and 8? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? 
I've got this battle in me going between my spirit and my flesh. And you know what? Sometimes the flesh wins. And I don't like that. Paul describes it. The fate of, of those people that sometimes when the flesh wins, those who confess, those who run for shelter, those whose hearts are sincere for pleasing God and who grieve over their sin, those who repent, they receive mercy. God is merciful. You can see mercy in the existence of the cities. Their purpose is to provide a place where God's mercy would be set on display. Where God's mercy would be distributed in a safe place. You can see mercy in the geography of the cities. The cities were easy to get to. Look at the map when you have a chance. It's there in your handout. They were readily available. All anyone had to do was run to them. All anyone had to do was surrender to them, confess to them, and receive mercy. You can see mercy. This is beautiful. You can see mercy in a high priest in verse 6. Listen to this. And he shall, and he shall remain the, the, the manslayer in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. Did you see what just happened there? The death of the high priest is the only way the judge can return home. The death of the high priest is the only way that the one who was judged can be set free. It's a beautiful shadow of the great high priest. Scott read about him earlier in the service. Jesus Christ, the high priest of all high priests, high priest on the order of Melchizedek. We can only truly find freedom. We can only go home with the death of the ultimate expression of of God's grace and mercy, Jesus Christ. And we have the picture of that here. God will give you sanctuary. He will give you safe. He will shed his mercy upon you. If you're contrite, surrender to him, confess your sin, and the death of his son sets you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for this beautiful picture of the high priest, the refuge offered in uh, the congregation of your people, the safety we have in both, Father, and the need for our contrite hearts to submit ourselves to you and your law. We thank you and praise you, Lord. We thank you for the tremendous freedom we have in Christ and the mercy that we get from the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.